the History Channel original podcast. History This Week, March 2nd, 1969. I'm Sally Helm. A lot of people are afraid to fly, which isn't crazy. Human beings aren't designed to fly. We've had to create technology to get us into the air. Gliders, parachutes, and of course, planes. Even if you're afraid of planes, you at least have the comfort when you get on board of knowing that someone has done this before. The pilot has flown this same route, probably even the same plane, dozens, maybe hundreds of times. The flight attendants do this all day long. Being at 30,000 feet is nothing to them. But there is a moment in the life of any airplane, any technology really, where someone has to try it for the first time. On March 2nd, 1969, at the Toulouse-Blagnac Airport in southern France, André Tourca is that person. He's going to fly a new plane called the Concorde. It's been developed in a joint partnership between Britain and France. And it's different from your typical passenger aircraft. It's designed to go much faster. In fact, the eventual goal is to break the speed of sound, allowing regular passengers to fly across the Atlantic in half the time, about three and a half hours instead of about eight. The plane has a distinctive look, sleek angled wings and a funny drooping nose like the beak of a bird. A crowd has gathered to watch Turka's test flight. He speeds down the runway, and when he lifts off into the air, the audience gasps. The angle of takeoff is so much sharper than they're used to. But Turka pulls it off. He takes a long loop over the airport, flying for just under half an hour, and then he touches down safely. Finally, the big bird flies, he says afterwards to reporters. And I can say now that it flies pretty well. It isn't the very first time that a plane like this has ever taken to the air. The Soviet Union flew their own version of the Concorde two months earlier. They'll also beat the Concorde at reaching supersonic speeds, aka breaking the sound barrier. But it's the Concorde that will really break through when it comes to passenger travel, letting people fly incredibly fast for decades until the era of supersonic flight comes abruptly to an end. Today, the flight of the Concorde. How did various nations compete to get this engineering marvel into the air? And what put an end to the Concorde's glamorous reign? Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. It's 1947, 22 years before André Turca's test flight of the Concorde. 
At Edwards Air Force Base in Southern California, a Boeing B-29 bomber climbs to 23,000 feet, high above an ancient sandy lake bed. Attached to the plane's belly is not a bomb, but a smaller plane. It's called a Bell X-1. Air Force Captain Chuck Yeager climbs down from the larger plane into the smaller plane's cockpit, straps himself in, then waits for the bomber to drop him. Yeager fought in World War II, and since then, he's become a test pilot, someone who tries out new planes, which takes a certain personality. He was a fairly straightforward person. Things were very much black and white, not shades of gray. That's Mike Bannister, a veteran airline pilot who has read a lot about Chuck Yeager. He had clear ambitions and aspirations. He had sometimes an ability to not understand why other people couldn't think as quickly as he could or come to decisions as rapidly as he did. But clearly a man that inspired others around him to get to their very best. Yeager's mission on this day in 1947 is this. Be the first person to fly faster than the speed of sound. Literally thousands of people have been working towards this moment and your safety and the success of the mission depends on each and every one of them. It's not an ideal day for Jaeger to complete this mission. A few nights back, he was horseback riding with his wife. They challenged each other to a race, and Jaeger rode right into a fence. He broke two ribs. He didn't tell the higher-ups because he didn't want them to say, no, Chuck, you cannot do this experimental flight with two broken ribs. Instead, he's brought a sawed-off broomstick handle with him into the cockpit of the Bell X-1. Okay, here we go. He's having trouble using his right arm, so he uses the broomstick to help him close the hatch. Now, he's ready. The B-29 has now reached drop altitude. The time for release is drawing near. The bomber lets Jaeger's plane go. He uses his rocket engines to climb another 20,000 feet into the stratosphere. Chuck Yeager's going into something where he really does not know what will happen when he gets above Mach 1. Mach 1 is the speed of sound, approximately 761 miles per hour at sea level. No one has ever gone faster than that, though people have been trying for years. Those test pilots, when they were doing these, just didn't know what was the other side. Yes, sure, they can make projections, but those projections were done with slide rules, not computers. And sadly, one or two of them did perish going through the sound barrier in the early days. The sound barrier is literally a barrier. As sound travels through the air, it travels because little molecules of air bash against each other. There is a finite speed that the sound can travel. And that's a function of how rapidly those little molecules of air can move. If you get up to that finite speed, all the molecules of air are bunched together. They create a barrier that you have to punch through to go quicker. Today, Jaeger is going to try to punch through that barrier and live to tell the tale. Hope that his plane doesn't bust into tiny pieces, that his controls don't go haywire. There had been some experiences before where those little barriers of air attached themselves to the controls and would make them vibrate really rapidly and would make the controls operate in the opposite direction. 
He's now at 42,000 feet, pushing the plane toward Mach 1. 600 miles per hour. 650. And then... Jaeger descends and lands the plane safely. This flight marks the first milestone in the supersonic chapter in the history of aviation. Why was it an aspiration? Why do we want to go so fast? In those days, driven by the necessities of the Second World War, if something was technically achievable, there was a lot of drive to do it because it could be done. And so the British, the French, the Americans, the Russians, they all wanted to do it. Breaking the sound barrier has opened up thrilling new opportunities with more on the horizon. It was an aspiration even then for people to say, right, well, that's great, but let's think about taking passages across the Atlantic at those sort of speeds, safely, regularly, and punctually. It's one thing for a veteran test pilot like Chuck Yeager to bust through the sound barrier. It's another to build a commercial plane that would let the regular air-traveling public do the same thing. And without a doubt, a plane like that would be very expensive to build. So at first, supersonic passenger travel is just a dream. But that changes in 1957, when the Soviet Union shocks the United States by being the first nation on Earth to send a satellite into space. It's called Sputnik. Until two days ago, that sound had never been heard on this Earth. The radio signal transmitted by the Soviet Sputnik, the first man-made satellite as it passed over New York earlier today. With this technological victory for the Soviets, the Cold War is heating up. The U.S. responds with a test launch of the Atlas Intercontinental Ballistic Missile. In the rocket's fiery wake was America's sober realization that the battle had just been joined. In 1958, the dawn of the space age. A supersonic passenger jet sounds more natural, more doable, once you've entered the space age. And also, competitive energy is running very high. So, the United States sets out to build such a plane. So does the Soviet Union. And the British and the French join forces to do the same. The British and French team calls their plane in progress Concorde. Its ambition is to carry 100 passengers and to go twice as fast as a regular plane. But how? If you've got such a complex problem, there's probably only one really perfect answer. Mike Bannister didn't design the Concorde, but he knows it well. He flew the plane for 22 years. He was once the chief Concorde pilot for British Airways. And he says... The Concorde is just not like other planes. The Concorde's are fundamentally four aeroplanes in one. It's a high aeroplane, a low aeroplane, a fast aeroplane, and a slow aeroplane. It has to be able to do what normal planes can do and also travel faster than the speed of sound at almost twice the altitude of other planes. And the fact that it's going to go so fast, you can see that in the design of the Concorde. It's got to be pointed. It's got to be long and thin. If you imagine a Boeing 747, fabulous aeroplane, but the size and shape of it doesn't look like it can go really fast because it is, it's not designed to do that. It's designed to carry lots of people safely, economically for long distances. Yeah, it's like portly or somehow. It's like a little rounder. Yeah. <laughs> Your word's not mine, but I wouldn't disagree. Um, 
Whereas a, a supersonic airplane has to be a bit like a dart. And you also want to have something that can generate lift at low speed and high speed. Put all that together and you get a plane that actually looks surprisingly recognizable to people. Imagine you were making, as a child, or maybe even still, a paper dart uh, aeroplane. Traditionally, paper dart aeroplanes end up with a triangular-shaped wing and a fuselage down the middle. Concorde's very much like that. It's got long, triangular wings that stretch almost its whole length. A lot like a paper airplane. A little bit more sophisticated, it's got more subtle shapes, but that's part of the reason, I think, why the airplane was so appealing to people, because it so closely resembled every child's paper dart. So it's coming together, this British and French plane called Concorde. Aside from the distinctive triangular wings, it has a bent-tipped pointed nose, and it looks like it can go fast. At the same time, the U.S. is developing its own supersonic plane. The American plan is to outdo their rival countries in every way. Build an aircraft that can carry 300 passengers at even higher speeds. But these inflated ambitions ultimately doom the project. The budget surges past a billion dollars, and the plane doesn't even make it past the model stage before the U.S. pulls the plug. That leaves one remaining rival to the British and the French. The Soviets. They speed up development by imposing strict deadlines on their engineers. And, some say, by swiping the Concorde's blueprints. When their plane debuts in 1968, it looks just like the Concorde. So much so that it was nicknamed Concordski. Its real name is the TU-144, and it beats the Concorde to the sky. They first flew on December the 31st, 1968. The Concorde's debut comes two months later, when pilot André Turcat makes his roughly half-hour loop over southern France. And then, as sometimes happens in the story of a complex technological feat, nothing dramatic happens for a while. For about four years, engineers are just doing lots of tests. And then finally, in 1973, both the Concorde and the TU-144 are set to perform for a crowd of 300,000 at the Paris Air Show. The Concorde is up first, and its flight is flawless. Next up is the TU-144. Because it looks so similar to Concorde, people assumed that it would be very similar in performance, which sadly it wasn't. At first, the plane flies beautifully. But when it's coming back down at about a thousand feet, things go very wrong. The crowd watches as the plane begins to break apart. It plunges to the ground and explodes. The crash kills all six crew members, plus eight people on the ground. There's another crash a few years later, and the plans for the TU-144 are scaled back. It never flies internationally and completes little more than 100 domestic flights. By contrast things could not be going better for the Concorde. In 1976, it's approved for passenger travel. It stands alone at the dawn of the supersonic age. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. 
Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. January 21st, 1976. Two Concords take their maiden passenger flights. A British Airways Concorde from London to Bahrain and an Air France Concorde from Paris to Rio de Janeiro. The Concorde flies at 50 to 60,000 feet. Passengers have never experienced anything like it. From that high, you can see the curvature of the Earth. And very strikingly, the sky is a much, much darker blue because the air is so much thinner. It's somewhere between plane travel and space travel. Mike Bannister has flown the Concorde many times, and he says pilots had never felt anything like it either. It was rather like a sports car rather than a truck or a thoroughbred racehorse rather than a riding school hack. You could actually fly the airplane with your fingertips through takeoff, climb, acceleration, supersonic flight, descent and landing. And it was a very rewarding airplane. For one thing, it was fast. The Concorde flew at about 1,350 miles per hour. Think of it this way. At the start of the century, a journey from London to New York by ship would have taken at least five days. But now, the Concorde has cut that trip down to three hours. People have a hard time wrapping their minds around it. You're traveling faster than the Earth rotates, and so the sun is effectively going backwards in the sky. In the spring and the autumn, you could take off from London when it's pitch black at seven in the evening. You fly across the Atlantic so quickly, you're going to land in New York at 20 past five the same evening. An hour and 40 minutes before you left. Musician Phil Collins famously took advantage of this in 1985 when he played a pair of concerts that started at the same time on different sides of the Atlantic. Good evening, America. Good evening, London. Good evening, the world. He played the first set at a Live Aid show in London, hopped on the Concorde, and played the last set at Live Aid in Philadelphia. This sound of him singing at the second show, which was only made possible by supersonic flight, astonishes the public. This was indeed against the odds. The stunt by Collins is a media sensation that further cements Concorde's reputation for high-tech glamour, not to mention VIP convenience. To start, you only had to check in 30 minutes before departure, and the pampering started right away. Do you want business facilities? Do you want a glass of champagne before you depart? Do you want quiet so you can read the papers? Once on board, you'll be given the best wines and the best food, You're traveling at faster than a rifle bullet. 
It's absolutely smooth because you're way up above all the weather. After landing? Because all the other airplanes were still only halfway across the Atlantic, you'd get through immigration and customs much more quickly. And it was always our aspiration that the baggage was waiting for you. This is all, of course, if you could afford it. In 1977, a one-way New York to London ticket on the Concorde cost about $793. That would be almost $4,000 today. And when British Airways began privatizing, they started looking for even higher profit margins. They were looking at trying to optimize Concorde's return for the airline. In a survey, the company asked its customers, how much do you think a Concorde ticket costs? Now, 80% of the Concorde customers were business people. They're the chief executives, the, the chief financial officers, the chief operational officers of really large companies. They don't buy the tickets themselves. Their PAs do on behalf of their companies. Meaning most of them had no idea of the cost. And the customers significantly overestimated what the cost of the ticket was by between 20 and 50%. So British Airways is like, okay. We might as well charge that amount. So we put the ticket prices up almost overnight by 20% and not a squeak. Suddenly, tickets were about $5,000 or $13,500 today. And by the early 2000s... The cost of a ticket between London and New York and back was $10,000. About $17,000 today. So not cheap. Mike Bannister says some companies thought it was worth it to save their chief executives valuable time. And who were the other 20% of Concord's clientele? 10% were the rich and famous. 5% were sports and showbiz personalities. And 5% were those doing a trip of a lifetime, you know, a granny where the family is saved up for it. Did you ever, like, have any crazy celebrity sightings? Well, one of the things British Airways always offered was discretion. Um, <laughs> so you're not going to tell me a crazy celebrity story. <laughs> <laughs> I will. Um, I met Tom Watson, the golfer, when he came back from the UK, having won the British Open Golf Championship. And in those days, prior to 9-11, we could invite customers onto the flight deck in flight. Watson came up to say hello, bringing his trophy with him. Then he went back to the cabin for lunch leaving the trophy behind, and we're passing it around the crew, taking photographs, and I drop the wretched thing. Oh, no! <laughs> right on the centre console and put a huge dent in it. Being an honest sort of Brit, I didn't tell him. One Concord stewardess says Paul McCartney and Elton John sang a duet on board, and that once Elizabeth Taylor let her try on a 33-carat diamond ring. The plane had a certain mystique. Crowds would sometimes gather at U.S. airfields just to watch it. Well, I can remember taking Concorde on a special flight to Oklahoma City. 45,000 people turned up to see the airplane. And that was not untypical. But others greet the plane with protest. They say this thing guzzles so much fuel and spews out pollution. In Sydney, hundreds of protesters greet the plane with signs reading, Save the Ozone Layer. Concord's defenders say, yes, the rate of fuel consumption is high, but the plane gets where it's going in half the time, so it uses less fuel than the average 747 to make that trip. But it's also true that the Concorde burns half its fuel during takeoff, climb, descent, and landing, meaning over airports in big cities, where people are breathing in emissions. But the most common complaint people raise 
is actually noise. Maybe the fastest, most advanced way to cross the Atlantic, but those who live near the runways at Kennedy Airport claim it's just the noisiest plane in the world. People who live near airports where the Concorde flies say that its engines are so loud they sometimes set off car alarms. New York City installs noise sensors near Kennedy Airport to measure the sound. But it has met the noise standards, the noise no, it hasn't. by Kennedy Airport. No, it hasn't because it has diverted itself. It knows where the black boxes are. They had a prescribed course. Bannister told us pilots did alter their routes to avoid the sensors, though he also added the sensors were near populated areas. So avoiding those sensors maybe did mean less noise where it would be most disturbing. But then the press starts talking to locals, asking them how they've been affected by the flights. The principal of a school near Kennedy Airport, a nun, tells reporters that she puts her hands over her ears when the supersonic transport plane takes off. People call it the SST. And the nun even buys white paint so her students can put a message on the roof for the pilots and passengers flying over them. It reads, stop the SST. New York officials eventually respond by limiting Concorde to two scheduled flights per carrier per day. And with only 100 seats per plane, it was hard for British Airways and Air France to make the numbers add up. Then, on July 25th, 2000, comes a major blow. On World News Tonight this Tuesday, the first Concorde ever to crash just after takeoff from Paris. 113 people are killed, which included everyone on board. An Air France Concorde crashes near Paris, two minutes after taking off. As chief Concorde pilot for British Airways, Mike Bannister gets a call about it almost right away. He says he could hear sirens in the background. It was clear that this was bad. And over the following weeks, safety inspectors start to piece together what went wrong. They set off down the runway and encountered a piece of metal on the runway which ruptured the tire. The metal did more than pierce a hole. What it did was to cut in the tire and scalp the tread. So a large part of rubber came away. The loose rubber hits the wing, which on a Concorde is also the fuel tank. It just happened that it hit the wing at a point where the fuel tank was 100% full, causing it to burst open, releasing 100 liters a second of fuel. The fuel ignites. The plane begins to burn. Then they get airborne a little bit too soon. The crew are doing their best to save the airplane and, of course, the passengers. But unfortunately, the fire consumed them and they lost control. Bannister remembers visiting a few days later. Debris is still smoldering at the crash site. He expects the Concorde to recover and fly again. And it does, within about a year. But it's the beginning of the end. In 2003, Air France is on the verge of becoming a private company, which means it'll lose its subsidy from the French government. So it needs to cut costs. And management takes a long, hard look at the Concorde. On the Air France books, there was a large, significant Concorde loss. So a good way to get rid of that loss was to stop operating the airplane. Without this partner to share the manufacturer's support costs, British Airways soon can't support their Concorde program either. On October 24th, 2003, Mike Bannister flies the final commercial Concorde flight from New York to London. 
stars like Christy Brinkley and Sting are on board. When Bannister lands, he's greeted by the press and more celebrities. It's a whole scene. At the end of that, I was the last person to leave and I walked across the tarmac, across these sort of neon lights in the mist. And there are five perfectly serviceable Concords that will never carry a fair-paying passenger again. The first age of supersonic passenger flight is over. But Bannister says a second one could be coming. Serious companies are still endeavoring to reintroduce a supersonic airliner that can match some of the feats of Concorde, but do it far more cost-effectively and far more environmentally friendly. What are your thoughts on that new era of supersonic travel that might be on the horizon? I'm an optimist, and I'm absolutely convinced that there will be a supersonic airliner in the not-too-distant future. A company named Boom Supersonic is constructing a supersonic commercial plane. It looks a lot like the Concorde. They're calling it the Boom Overture, and they've already taken orders from airlines like United. The goal is to offer supersonic flights by 2029. And maybe in Queens, the principal of a school is getting ready to buy more white paint. Thanks for listening to History This Week. For moments throughout history that are also worth watching, check your local TV listings to find out what's on the History Channel today. If you want to get in touch, please shoot us an email at our email address, historythisweek at history.com, or you can leave us a voicemail, 212-351-0410. Special thanks to our guest, Mike Bannister, author of Concord, the thrilling account of history's most extraordinary airliner. This episode was produced by Corinne Wallace and co-produced by Morgan Givens. It was sound designed by Dan Rosato and story edited by Jim O'Grady. Our senior producer is Ben Dickstein. History This Week is also produced by Julia Press and me, Sally Helm. Our associate producer is Emma Fredericks. Our supervising producer is McKamey Lynn. And our executive producer is Jesse Katz. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review History This Week wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll see you next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.